0: Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in. And if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Turn to the book of Isaiah, book of Isaiah, chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These words were penned about 700 years before the life of Christ. It's kind of interesting because when you read that, you're, just, you're automatically thinking about Jesus. You're like, oh, that's referencing the crucifixion. But it was 700 years before the crucifixion that those words were written. Now, you remember the telephone game when you were a kid? I always had, this had a special place in my heart where you start, you have a row of people and you start at one end and you whisper something, a sentence or two into their ear and then they whisper it to the next person, the next person all down the road. And then of course, by the time you get to the end, it's gotten so garbled, it's ridiculous and it's hilarious and it's funny, right? It never is the same words at the end of the line that it was at the beginning. I've had lots of conversations with people that feel like the bible cannot be trusted because it's essentially a millennia-long game of telephone whatever somebody wrote down thousands of years ago i mean how in the world can we know that it made through all the translations and the copies and all the people how in the world how do we know that those words in any way shape or form resemble what was at the beginning what was actually said the bible and this is the critique the bible is unreliable there's just no way, there's no way that we have the same words that were given us at the beginning. The Bible, and, and if it's not unreliable, then a lot of people object that it's unrealistic. I mean there's too much objectionable stuff in scripture we should not read this and apply it to our lives because there's some ridiculous crazy stuff the bible's unreliable it's unrealistic and that makes it unreasonable it's just unreasonable to center our lives around this book that maybe had something to say for people thousands of years ago but certainly not in 2023 even christians often concede some of those points we tend to sweep the objectionable stuff kind of under the rug, and we say, well, don't, don't pay attention to that chapter or that verse or that. Just don't go there. Let's stick with this other stuff. We're in a series called Elements. We're talking about the essence of our faith, and last week we talked about belief and how it's not unreasonable to believe that there is a creator, there is a God, there is an ultimate being. It's not unreasonable. You remember we talked about that the only way that Hamlet would know that Shakespeare exists is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. You remember that? We talked a little bit about that last week. Well, we have access to this document that says right from the very beginning, in the beginning, God. We're introduced. Hamlet is introduced to Shakespeare right at the very beginning of this document. That's the claim it's making. This is wild to think about. This is not something we think about very often, but the claim that we're making when we hold our Bibles is that That Christians believe that this is somehow from the divine creator, that we hold in our hands, that we have copied onto our phones, that we scroll through, or we listen to, or that we read, or that we we meditate on. This is somehow from that God. That's what we're saying. And that's a wild claim, and you can understand why lots of people are hesitant to believe that. Lots of people are hesitant to accept that, to say, like, all right, you think this is from God, especially given all the issues with transgressions? and time and and just the unrealistic things that it says. If the Bible is really from God, then it should be reliable. It should be realistic. It should be reasonable to believe. I shared this with my Revelation class a few weeks ago. Let me say this from the outset. Uh, Julian is fine, okay? I want you to know Julian is totally fine, my parents traveled to see their grandkids, uh, this has been several months ago, their grandkids, uh, Benjamin and Adelaide and Julian, who is fine, by the way, and Anthony. They traveled to see them, see how they're doing, check in on them, that sort of thing. We have a family text thread we all share, and uh, every once in a while, you know, somebody will pop up with it. Here's a picture of something of interest to the family, so a couple months ago, When I opened up my phone and saw this on my home screen, you can imagine, I was a little startled. This is from my mother. It is with much sadness that I must inform you that Julian has passed. I see that, and Julian is fine, by the way. I just want you to know that. But I did not know that when I saw this preview of the message on my home screen, and my heart just drops, like, what in the world has happened? And I kind of scramble to, oh, well, here's the rest of the message. This is from my mother. It is with much sadness that I must inform you that Julian has passed me up in height. <laughs> like... Could you have worded that any worse? Is there there any way that could have been more misunderstood? Julian, who is 13 years old, and he's a growing boy, and he is now taller than his grandmother, which is a big achievement, by the way. But when I first read that message, I was like, are you kidding me? What has happened? Now, the important thing is that I hadn't read the full message. I hadn't gotten all the way to the end. I didn't know the whole story. What we're about to do this morning, if you feel like I got to get up and go to the bathroom in the next 15 minutes, I got to take a call, I'm tired and I want to go home and take a nap, I'm going to tune out, I'm telling you if you do that in the next 15 minutes or so, you are going to leave here incredibly confused because I'm going to validate some of those objections that people have about the Bible. And you're going to hear some things that I don't think are true, Julian is fine, but that you need to know in order to understand the bigger picture of what we're talking about, the bigger picture. So don't bail early. It's going to get a little scary and a little confusing, but don't bail early. I want to be honest about the critiques that we have with scripture. Um, So I'm going to show you a one-minute clip Uh, of a gentleman who is probably the foremost, at least popular level, critic of the Bible. His name is Bart Ehrman, uh, and he's the chair of religious studies at the University of North Carolina. And I think, and I'm trying to be completely fair to what he says and his objections and his critiques about Scripture, uh, and I want to present these to you. This is not something you're going to see very often in the church. You're not going to hear the arguments for the other side too often. But that's why you've got to stay <laughs> and you got to listen to the whole story. you got to read the whole text, okay? So we're going to show this. It's just a one-minute clip, and it's edited down from a 20-minute interview. I'm happy for you to watch the whole thing. I just didn't think you wanted to watch 20 minutes of this interview with him. So we got the main points in a one-minute clip. So let's go ahead and play that, if you would. This is Pennsylvania Inside Out, I'm Patty Satalia, and our guest today is a New Testament expert. He's chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a best-selling author, and an agnostic. Some say he peered so hard into the origins of Christianity that he lost his faith. In in misquoting Jesus, you cast doubt on any number of New Testament uh, stories, episodes, that uh, are really sort of the cornerstone of, of Christian belief. The, the Bible was copied over decades and then centuries, and we don't have the we don't have the originals. We have copies made uh, many centuries later, and. And what most people don't realize are that there are, there are thousands and thousands of differences among these manuscripts. There are mistakes all over the place. You know there are mistakes because you can compare two manuscripts and they differ from one another. And so, uh, so you have this, this problem that people are changing their text. And then the question is, what's the original text? What got changed? All right. That's a a lot to take in. And some of you are like, hey, I thought I came to church today and this is what is this some sort of agnostic atheist seminar. I'm supposed to leave here without faith. But hold on. Let me. Julian is fine, by the way. Let me get to. Well, Let's talk about this. Bart Ehrman's a real scholar. He's the real deal. He doesn't have an ax to grind. He's not being paid by a church. He doesn't, you know, wh- what does it matter to him, what he actually believes, whether he's an atheist or agnostic or anything. I should probably say it's fair. I have a little history with this guy. I don't, I've never met him, uh, but we had a, uh, a young lady up at the camp that I work at that she had come every year, and while she was at camp, she received notification that she received a full-ride scholarship to the University of North Carolina, and we were cheering for her, we were so excited for her. It was really a cool thing. She was going to, her, her way was going to be paid. And she called me early in her freshman year, and she said, I've got a class with this professor, Bart Ehrman, and I'm a little nervous about it because I feel like I'm not sure my faith can handle some of the stuff that he's going to talk about. And so we talked through that a little bit and tried to shore up what she thought or what she believed. And I, I don't know what the dynamics or exactly what happened, but that young lady to this day would not consider herself a believer. And I don't know that it's in small part to this gentleman right here. Like it has an impact on people's faith. It makes a difference. So he wrote this book called Misquoting Jesus. This was published in 2006, so it's a little bit older, uh, but he would still stand by it. Probably one of his best-selling books. Um, He was a Christian. Now he's not. And and I think it's fair to say that he's probably one of the more well-known articulate critics of Scripture. Uh, So here are his basic claims. His basic claims is we do not have the originals. We do not have the originals. We cannot go to some museum. We cannot go to some uh, manuscript library and hold the originals that Paul wrote, that John wrote, that Matthew wrote. We cannot hold those originals. That's one of his claims. Is that true or not? That is true. We do not have the originals. We we don't know what happened to the originals. They didn't make it. They're thousands of years old. That's absolutely uh, true. One of the other things he claims is that there are differences between the copies that we do have. That's another claim that he makes. That is true. There are thousands and thousands of differences between the copies that we do have. And so he wrote uh, himself, this is his own words, I did my very best to hold on to my faith that the Bible was the inspired word of God and I realized that we have over 5,000 manuscripts. That's 5,000 copies of the New Testament and no two of them are exactly alike. And you know what? He is correct. He is correct. And for him, that information made him lose his faith. And there you have it, right? If you really dig into it, if you really study, if you really do the research, you can't possibly trust that these words are actually from God. I mean, we, it's not reliable, right? The author, I guess, didn't write himself into the story after all. How many of you are a little nervous? You're like, Patrick, you've just convinced me. You're like, no, 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 Julian is fine. Okay? Let's get there. Let's get there. This is, uh, this is important. There's actually a phenomena that I've noticed in my experience uh, working with people, especially people who are struggling with some, some issues and questions of doubt. By the way, this is really important for me to say, doubt is not a problem for belief and faith. That's not something we're trying to avoid. We're not trying to sweep it under the rug. We should examine it and talk about it and think about it. If you're struggling with doubts, so I don't want you to feel like you can't come to people and ask about it, ask questions like, why in the world does this happen? Or why is this this way? I don't understand. I saw this thing on YouTube, I heard this thing from a professor. That is okay. We do not shy away from doubt and we should not shy away from doubt, it's totally okay. But there is a phenomenon I've noticed and it's a thrill humans get from knowing a truth that they think the ignorant masses don't know, like we have some special little secret knowledge that nobody else knows, we have a deeper knowledge, and I think guys are more susceptible. Uh, than girls to this and it probably explains why there's a larger percentage of male atheists than female atheists because I think guys kind of enjoy thinking that we know something that the rest of the world uh, doesn't know. Um, We're enlightened, the rest of humanity is just unthinking sheep. So the notion is if you just do a little research you'll just see how silly all this is or the subtext is smart people don't buy into this nonsense and that all seems right if you stop here. There's this uh, field of textual criticism. This is really interesting. Those two words probably just bored some of you to death, but I'm telling you, this is one of the most fascinating things. This is like like mystery detective work, but really important kind of detective work. It's called textual criticism. Bart Ehrman's a textual critic. And what these people do, they're incredibly detail-oriented people. I could not do this job. But they spend their entire careers looking at every different copy of the New Testament and they mark every single little difference and mistake down and they just, they catalog everything. They spend their entire lives doing this. Can you imagine doing that for a living? But there's folks that do that. That's what they, they spend all their fun free time. They enjoy doing it. They spend their weekends doing it, I'm sure. Textual criticism. And it's very tedious, but it's very important. And so we're going to do a little textual criticism this morning. Okay? We're going to... De- I'm... Well, let's, let's just do it. Let's just do it. I need five volunteers. Mariska, Lily, will you come up here? Let's see. Malachi, you want to help out? You're trying not to make eye contact, but go ahead, Noah. Come on up. Oh, yeah, Rachel, come on up. All right. Let's see. That's five. That's perfect. Rachel, excellent. All right. I've got five copies of a statement. Every single copy that I have has mistakes in it, okay? They all have mistakes, and they're on purpose, Phil, all have mistakes in it, all right? So you're going to hold, each one of you is going to hold a copy uh, of a manuscript. There you go. Here, go ahead and come right on up with Rachel. There you go. All right, and we're going to determine if we can figure out what the original might have been using textual criticism. All right, this will be fun. Some of you are like, I think I already know what the original might have been. By the way, how many of you know Presley, our youth minister? Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Smattering of applause. I think, uh, you yeah. know, okay, interesting. All right, so we're going to do this. We have five copies, and they're all different. Every single one of them has mistakes. This is copy number one. Looks like Presley wrote this. Presley, Presley, <laughs> Presley. This is bad spelling, right? Can you you can you're like okay, I, I think I know what whoever that was. Somebody copied an original statement, but they were bad at spelling. They were bad at grammar. I I kind of get it, but but that's bad. Like, how, what are we gonna do with that copy? Well, it's a good thing we have more than one copy, right? Because we can compare the two. We can do some textual criticism. So number two, we've got Preston is the greatest youth minister ever. Now, like, oh no, that's problem because his name's not Preston what do we do with that like how do we is this one right Or is this one right? What do we do? How do we figure that out? How do we decide which one is correct? And this is the struggle textual critics have with Scripture. How do they determine of those? It's actually 5,800 different copies of New Testament manuscripts. How do we determine which words are right? Well, we've got good thing we have more. Number three, let's see. Are you number three? Yeah, Lily's number three. Um, Number three is Presley is the greasiest youth minister ever. (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, if somebody had the original copy of something and they're writing it down, one person, number one, was really bad at spelling. They didn't know a lot about how to write, so they wrote it wrong. Number two, got the name wrong. Number three, greasiest. That sounds weird. Why would that be? So which words are correct? Which are the right words that we want to be using in here? Well, good thing we have more copies. Number four, uh, this is the Yoda version. Greatest youth minister ever, Presley, is... It's got all the right words, but they're in all different orders. And then number five, this person didn't have time for vowels, and so they just wrote. Now, you have all these copies of these different ideas. Imagine this is your first Sunday that you've ever been here, and you have no idea who any of these people are. You've never met any of us before. Do you think you could figure out, based on these five different mistaken manuscripts, what the original might have said? absolutely why because we can eliminate preston because we know that's wrong because it's the only one with that digression so we know that's not right but it confirms some of the other material in the message right so we're like it can't be preston his name's got to be presley because all the other documents said it number three greasiest that doesn't fit the context really presley's never struck me as particularly greasy so that doesn't fit. None of the other copies mention that. So that doesn't fit at all. So we can eliminate that. All the other ones say greatest, even if they misspelled it. So we're f- we know that that what that means. And then the Yoda when we get that. It's just out of order, but we get what is meant. And then the one without vows, we get what is meant there too. We understand that someone at some point in history thought Presley was the greatest youth minister ever. Do you see how textual criticism works? Now, these are just five copies. Do you know how many copies of New Testament manuscripts we have? We just have five here. How many was that? Close. We have 5,800 Greek copies and counting. Is this a little too nerdy for some of you? Because this is good stuff. This is important stuff. Some of you are like, yep, it's too nerdy. (laughs) All right, it's fine. Whatever. I'm not listening to you. 5,800 Greek copies. 10,000 copies in Latin 10,000. So that means a couple hundred years after these Greek copies were written, Latin copies were written. And then, in uh, number three, we have 20,000 copies in other languages. And then, this is the craziest thing... If you were to take the early church fathers and you were to try to compile all the data from the early church fathers, you have over one million quotations from the New Testament that are just written into letters and documents that early church fathers wrote. You have what they call an embarrassment of riches when it comes to New Testament documents. There's so many to compare. So do you think that we can figure out what the original said? Yes, absolutely, there's no doubt. By the way, what kinds of errors do you find in all the thousands and thousands of errors? The most common, and the one that Ehrman downplays is the most common kind of error is spelling errors. But they didn't have Webster's uh, New Revised Dictionary. There wasn't a standard way to spell certain words. So for example, in the book of John, some manuscripts write John with two N's instead of one because some people wrote it that way. And there wasn't any standard. 70% of the mistakes between the documents are spelling errors. The second major category of errors, quote unquote, is word order, which works different in different languages. And English is the one that we're kind of rigid about that, but a lot of languages, they don't really care. Just put the words in there and people will figure it out. That's 25% of the different, um, of of the errors. And then the last category is 4% are synonyms. They just, they used kid instead of child. Can we figure out what the original meant based on that? Absolutely. You guys can have a seat. Thank you very much. Thanks for being our textual critics today. <laughs> All right. But here's the thing. Some of you are like, well, okay, Patrick, I did the math right there. And how, what percent does that still leave that could be a problem? 1%. What if that 1% is really important? Like, what if at the end of the Bible, uh, the authors just wrote, psych, it was just a joke. What if that's the 1%? What if the 1% is like, actually, Jesus didn't really exist? What if it's a really important 1%? We can't just ignore 1%. What if the 1% is like my mom's text to me about my nephew, Julian? What if that's the 1% of the text that didn't make it through? How can we know? How can we know what is the 1%? By the way, one way we can know we can be reasonably certain of 99% of the New Testament, Bart Ehrman said in appendix to misquoting Jesus, buried it deep in the back of the book, he said, we can be reasonably confident of something like 99% of the New Testament. That doesn't sell books, though, so he had to put it in the appendix. How do we know what the 1% is? This is good. How do we know? How do we figure out that 1%? Your Bibles that you're holding, they tell you. Here's a screenshot from my Bible. This is John chapter 8. John chapter 8, where it says in a little, a little parenthetical statement, hey, by the way, this section you're about to read, we're not sure it was in there. It's, it's good stuff, but we're not sure it was in the original. Your Bibles want you to know we're not sure. Now, here's the thing, but but what if that 1% impacts like really, really important doctrines, really, really important truths? Let me give you one more Bart Ehrman quote uh, from a 2014 blog. The essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. The guy who is criticizing the Bible says it doesn't really affect what you believe about the Bible. Isn't that interesting? This same guy. So here's a question. Is the Bible reliable just in the little that we've done? Yeah, totally reliable. Overwhelmingly reliable. I mean, incredibly reliable. Can we know what the original document said? Yeah, absolutely. We totally, we totally can know. Hamlet gets to meet Shakespeare. 2 Timothy 3:16 All scripture is God-breathed. This is the claim scripture makes about itself and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Now some of you are sitting there thinking thinking I don't care. You can show me all the manuscript evidence all day. I don't really care because it's not about whether or not we have the actual originals. In fact, if we do have what it originally said, that makes it even worse for me because I don't like what it says. What it says is regressive and outdated and wrong and isn't taking society forward. It's bringing it backward. Does any of this matter if it's not realistic and makes a difference for us? I was uh, watching this debate. It was a room full of people who thought the Bible was ridiculous. And they asked for audience questions. And there was this one young man in the audience. And he raised his hand. And he's like, Well, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I I think that the Bible's true. And they didn't even let him get to his question because the whole room was like, Boo, you're ridiculous. You know, and this poor, poor kid was trying to, like, Pose a a, a response and the host said oh so you believe the stories in the bible and he was like well yeah yeah oh you believe genesis 19 there's this awful story about sodom and gomorrah and it's just terrible terrible story you believe that and so these hosts go right to the most difficult texts in the bible and they're like well that's ridiculous and if that's ridiculous it's all ridiculous is there hard stuff in the bible stuff that we don't understand right off the bat, stuff that can be confusing and misleading? Absolutely, absolutely. And some some of what we have may be, it may be a struggle for people to believe its relevance or it's it's realistic. And and what I'm about to say is is subjective. But I do want to point out three consistent realities for all of us. Most of the time what people are rejecting isn't scripture It's a person's interpretation of Scripture, most of the time. In fact, when I've had people approach me with objections and say, how can you believe that that's true? I often can say, well, I agree with you. I don't believe that that's what that text is saying. They're rejecting an interpretation by a person. That's often what's happening. And this poor kid, in trying, he, they're like, you believe that awful story about Sodom and Gomorrah. You believe that horrible thing. And the poor kid didn't really have a chance to respond. But if you read that story, there, no point in that story does an editor come in and say, and we believe everything that's happening here is wonderful and good. It's a negative example. And the Bible doesn't shy away from proposing negative examples. It doesn't shy away from showing us the flaws of its heroes. It just takes a little thinking about it. Secondly, and this is really important, the moral indignation that we use to reject Scripture is from Scripture itself. Now, what do I mean by that? We live in a culture whose definitions of justice and equality are derived from Scripture themselves. What you believe about justice ultimately comes from the Bible. Maybe it's applied in ways that you don't always agree, but what you believe about it comes from Scripture. Just this week, I finished reading a book that was excellent. It's called The Air We Breathe, and it makes a historical case for everything that we read in Scripture it has pervaded society, and then people have taken that, those ideas, and then they reject a misunderstanding of Scripture. It's, it's amazing. And then the other book I would recommend is Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, excellent, excellent case to make for how we understand these objectionable parts of Scripture. But the book, The Air We Breathe, or the author has this quote, he says, you are so shaped by the Bible that even the criticisms that you may have of the Bible are from values instilled in you by the Bible. It's, it's good stuff. You, you should read it. And then number three, the th- third thing I would say about the objectionable parts is that I think we need to anchor ourselves in what is clear before we wade into what is unclear or reject it all because of what is unclear. There are some things from the beginning to the end that are incredibly clear. God loves you. That is absolutely clear. There is no point. There is no scripture. There is no interpretation of scripture that can reject that truth. That is absolutely clear. What if we took that truth and then we enter into the more difficult portions of Scripture based on the context that we know God is love and that God deeply loves us and He deeply loves humanity. Anchor yourself in the clear. I mean, imagine, I'm, imagine if I quit math because the very first thing I studied was calculus. Imagine if you try to jump in the deep end of any subject or any topic and it's going to feel overwhelming. So let's anchor ourselves what's clear so the question is is the bible reliable yes is it realistic well that's up to you to determine but billions of people who have have found their lives transformed by truth that they've read in scripture is it realistic yeah i would say yes is it reasonable in uh, 1946 there were some young israeli shepherds down near the dead sea near the north shore of the dead sea and they were doing what (laughs) guys do just throwing stuff and they're throwing rocks into these caves way up on these cliffs. You can see this little hole. They're chucking rocks up in there. You know, it's just, what do boys do when they're herding sheep, right? You know, we've all been there herding our sheep and throwing rocks. Anyway, uh, they throw rocks into this particular cave and they hear the sound of something breaking sound like pottery breaking and so what's that and so they scramble up there you can see it would have been a chore to get up to that entrance and they scramble up there and inside they find this broken pot among many pots but the broken one there was a few documents and they pull it out and they're like wow this looks like something old it's probably valuable and they take it down to an antiquities dealer and they sell it to this guy for 26 dollars. this guy held on to it for a while wasn't sure what he had and he finally finally these documents finally found their way this little scrap of a document, finally found its way to someone who recognized, oh, that is ancient Hebrew writing. And they sat down and they translated this first little scrap of a document that they found in these caves. Now, the earliest copy that they had of what I'm about to read you came from about 900 AD. And so this little scrap that they found predated it by a thousand years. And this is what this little scrap of manuscript read. A thousand years had gone by, and they read the copy from about 900 A.D., and then they read the copy that was written a thousand years earlier, same truth, same truth. These are the truths that have been preserved in Scripture for us. Why? Because we need that. You came here today, you probably didn't come here caring a whit about textual criticism, and you might leave here not caring a whit about textual criticism. But you came here with baggage. Uh, From choices that you've made. You came here with fears because of choices people you love have made. You came here with worries and concerns or or joys that you didn't know how to express. And one of the realities of scripture is that we're given the context with which we can view this whole story and understand that we serve a God who has written himself into the narrative and has given us a reason to, to find redemption. The iniquities of us all were placed on him. Those are the truths that have been long preserved. Oh, what what a reality that we live in. Are there difficult things in Scripture? Absolutely yes. But are there truths that will transform your life in more ways than you can imagine? Yes. And that's why it's so valuable that we understand we can come to the scripture with with this with this understanding that it is reliable that it is realistic that it is reasonable to believe the bible as we have have it it, it wasn't it wasn't brought to us till about uh, 300 a.d in the form that we have it there were a lot of people that never had access to scripture never had it never once never once read a page of scripture they wanted to but they didn't have it it wasn't in their language they couldn't read And you know what? Those people still somehow manage to believe that God loves them. That God loves them. You know, if you've come this morning and you're like, I'm on the edge. I'm not sure. I just want you to know there are good reasons to believe. But if you came this morning and you're like, I couldn't care less about whether or not the Bible's reliable. I just want to know, am I loved? Does God care about me? I'm just here to tell you, I believe absolutely the answer is yes. That and so much more.